Good morning. I just wanted to share a little bit more along the lines of what I was talking about yesterday. So um, I'm going through Carl Jung's Red Book. Now I'm um, specifically going through his sermons to the dead because, as I said yesterday, it uh, very closely uh, matches uh, the format, uh, function, and uh, even content of Nietzsche's Zarathustra. Uh, sorry, um, yeah, Carl Jung's Liber Novus, um, which is interesting. They call it the new book, but if you look at what Liber Novus means, it's more than just um, new book. It's also uh, Liber Free, uh, Novus, New, uh, right? Uh, to be truly free, to be on a new path, to be to be an agent. So I've mentioned this little, and it's, and I'm going to read a little um, excerpt uh, to four pages in my handwriting, so not that much. A little excerpt from, I believe it was the sixth sermon to the dead. It's near the end of uh, Carl Jung's Red Book, the Liber Novus. And it relates to one of my favorite uh, little stories that I've, I've shared before. Um, and I believe it goes back to when uh, meditation was first brought over. It was brought over by a monk from the Himalayas. And so he was teaching in the West, and obviously no different today than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Most people were looking for calm, peace, uh, I'd love to say oneness, but I don't think they were. They were looking for stress relief. So the way this story goes, and I half wonder if it was, it's another archetype here, but the way the story goes is that this monk had left the Himalayas and come to the West and been teaching uh, meditation, mindfulness uh, here in the West for a while. Um, either he went home, I can't remember the exact stories, uh, you can probably find it, uh, it's, uh, it's well told by um, Swami uh, Sarvapriyananda, uh, he's the uh, Vedanta um, monk in charge of the New York uh, Society of Vedanta, one of the oldest in America, it was set up by, um, by a gentleman that came over for um, an interfaith council in 18... 1898 or 1893, 1895, right around there. Really quite interesting bit of history, right? So think around in this period, right, the 20s or the 30s, when very few people even understood what this practice was. Right? So it really was up to him to tell these people what the practice was, right? It's not like it is now where you can get a book on just about every corner that might tell you what they think is mindfulness or meditation or the practice of uh, Chittabhavana. So uh, this monk either went home or he ran into some of his fellow brothers and his fellow brothers asked him, they said, um, why are you teaching uh, stress reduction here in the West? Why are you not teaching them our actual practice, that of, of uh, trying to uh, unity? Uh, trying to attain moksha, mukti, uh, enlightenment, nirvana, whatever you want to call it, this uh, satori, uh, in a, 
enlightening experience and awareness and awakening. Uh, so they said, why are you teaching them this uh, arguably uh, uh, I don't want to say that that's a bad word nowadays. Um, uh, a degenerate form of our teaching when uh, you should be teaching them that uh, right, you should be striving for enlightenment. So the monk says, I teach them what they want to learn in the hopes that someday they may want to learn what I want to teach them. I love that. And of course, I've said it before that I think it's, it's a funny little aphorism told, but it's also a bit of a mistake because technically that stress reduction is part of the practice. It's the first step towards being able to calm your physical experience, the somatic, and the mind, the vedan, vedanta, the vedana, <laughs> the vedana of thought, of volition, emotion. So I really do love that, because uh, it can teach in two ways. One, uh, these uh, brother monks didn't understand, right, to bring uh, the West into the fold it is not going to be the easiest of things to do. But what's funny is this morning I got up a little early, I couldn't sleep. Um, so I'm listening, as I said, I'm listening to uh, Seven Sermons to the Dead, which is near the end of uh, Carl Jung's Red Book. And I was struck by this sermon, not because it is so well known, but the content. And so I'm going to read you, I believe it's the sixth sermon to the dead, but don't quote me on that. And we're going to talk a few things as we go through it, uh, but you're also going to see the synergy uh, to what I mentioned. So, I'll start off here. And again, I've uh, copied uh, this section, so it's not a word for word, and keep in mind it is from the German, um, so there are sections I'm going to point out where are much better in the German. And um, from the Red Book, Carl Jung. These dead have rejected the single and highest God. So how can I teach them about the one, only, and not multifarious God? They must, of course, believe me, but they have rejected this belief. So I teach them the God that I know, the multifarious and extended, who is both the thing and its appearance, and they also know him even if they are not conscious of him. These dead have given names to all beings, beings in the air and on the earth and in the water. They have weighed and counted things. They have counted so and so many horses cows, sheep, trees, segments of land and spring. This is good for this purpose and for that one. What did they do with the admirable tree or the sacred frog? I apologize. Uh, my handwriting is so terrible. I'm having trouble uh, following along here, but I'm going to stop and mention Right, So the dead have given names to all beings, beings in the air, on the earth, and in the water. They have weighed and counted things, just like Nietzsche's, the man, the evaluator. Right? 
right, so what we're getting to is we're starting to talk about valuing, but more so than that, not just spirituality, but but treating the world as divine, not in a uh, theosophical sort of way, but appreciation. It's the idea that I've mentioned before. Hardwiring happiness means um, highlighting the positive, uh, not ignoring the negative, but knowing that we have this negativity bias, you can't highlight the negative. It becomes everything. So you have to highlight the positive while being aware of reality, obviously. That's the awareness that Carl Jung asks us. Right? So I ask, here's a little string you can pull. You can take a look at um, Carl Jung's red book, uh, Liber Novus, where he talks about this idea of um, things being counted uh, and, and weighed. Uh, if you look at the German he used, you can compare it to Nietzsche's, where he talks about man as the evaluator or the, the evaluator. And that's what the word means in German. Uh, it means where you, you weigh it and, and things are counted and, and, and tallied and measured and then valued. Right? So I'll go on. Uh, well, I'll actually go back a little bit. Uh, what did they do with the admirable tree and the sacred frog? Did they see his golden eye? Where is the atonement for their 7,777 cattle whose blood they spilt, whose flesh they consumed? Penance for the sacred ore dug from the earth. No, they named, weighed, numbered, and apportioned all things. They did whatever pleased them. What did they do? You saw the powerful. But this is precisely how they gave power to things unknowingly. Things say how many men. Things weigh and apportion men. So, in this section, he's talking about, like I said, man as the evaluator. But if we're not present and aware and constantly reevaluating, that's what uh, Jung is getting to here. How uh, we gave power to things unknowingly, right? How we became unconscious beings. And how things began to weigh and apportion men, right? I love how that section switches over. And then he carries on, he says, Your hand. Grasp the earth and tore off the halo. I like that line. Your hand grasped the earth and tore off the halo. Right? So, like what Nietzsche was, was asking us in, in Zarathustra or, or warning us is that um, many religions will ask us to um, minimize the importance of this world. Right, the opposite of what Tantra teaches, that this world is as precious as the next, and our portal to the divine is through this um, earthly realm. So in Zarathustra, Nietzsche tells us this, and here Jung once again uh, is looking at this idea that we have to appreciate our existence here, our ephemeral existence here on earth, but we've torn off the halo. Right? We're not, we're not being, it's the union of opposites, this idea that 
life is suffering it is uh, what you call it a finite existence but it's not separate from the infinite so he says your hand grasped the earth uh, and tore off the halo and weighed and numbered the bones of things I love that weighed and numbered the bones of things hollow empty you missed out your opportunity on actual life you're 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 tallying things once they have already um, served their useful time is not the one and the only simple-minded God pulled down and thrown upon the heap once again this idea that uh, the gods were meant to be a template for our um, for our growth and if we tear them down or we don't uh, we don't see them as a, a template for our potential are they not dead so the most seeming and separate things dead and living yes this god taught you to weigh and number bones but the month of this God is drawing to a close. Everything must uh, become different. Hence, a new month stands at the door. I love that. I wonder if he's referring to Aquarius or a, a period of enlightenment. In Buddhism, we would call it the Dharma ending age, which is an age where it's hard to hear the Dharma, but uh, it's a belief that uh, it will give birth to a new age, uh, one of, of enlightenment, uh, a renaissance, if you will. No polytheism I have made up. So many gods, but many gods that powerfully raise their voices and tear humanity to bloody pieces. Right? I mean, we complain about polytheism, or we complain about religion itself, and yet we still allow these multifarious gods to tear us apart instead of realizing that they're meant to work for us in a sense or we're meant to give value and meaning to the gods themselves we are meant to do that not they and certainly not in a, in the mythological sense how the the gods tormented man at one time so and so many men weighed, numbered, apportioned, hacked, and devoured. I love that line. Therefore I speak of many gods, as I speak of many things, since I know them. Why do I call them gods? For the sake of their superiority. Do you know of their superior strength? I love that because I talk about that in Buddhism, the idea of Siddhi, uh, Sanskrit word, S-I-D-D-H-I, doesn't have to have the H. <clears throat> this idea of um, skill. I mean, it's mentioned in the Pali canon, this idea that um, a great hunter, uh, his Siddhi in the hunt, his skill in the hunt, Right? So, to outsider city can seem like a supreme power or strength, right? If you have uh, an extreme power of, of focus and concentration, when, when all others are losing their mind, and 
that can seem as if it were superior strength. And I go on, Young says, these dead laugh at my foolishness. But would they? Would they have raised a murderous hand against their brothers if they had atoned for the velvet-eyed ox? If they had done penance for the shiny ore, the holy ore, I wrote down shiny, my apologies. If they had done penance for the holy ore, or they had atoned for the velvet-eyed fox. And I, don't forget, shiny ore, um, it's an allusion to the idea of what makes ore special. Sure, there is some uses, um, but we, we put far greater value, and this is what we're trying to get at here. Gold has its use, and it is pretty. But neither of those account for its actual value. What is it, nearly $2,000 an ounce right now? That's ridiculous, because when I was in the bank, not probably not much more than 20 years ago, um, it was one-tenth that. It was $261. And the reason why I remember that, it was incredibly low, so low that they couldn't even pull the gold out of the ground for that amount of money. So, or is a perfect example of, of valuation, right? Giving meaning to something. I make jokes about watches. I mean, you can get a fabulous time uh, keeper for $100, uh, $200, but for the same, same watch, in every way, fit, form, function, quality, everything can be identical, and you can pay $1,000 for that watch. You could pay $10,000 for a watch that you could get for $1,000. What's the difference between the two? It's very similar to the ore. Same with the velvet-eyed fox. Uh, fox. Velvet-eyed ox. I love that because we have this universal archetype of the cow. Right? He's saying ox in this case, but it, it, it's the illusion, right? The, the workhorse... It's the ox that allowed us to produce food in the fields by tilling the soil, making it productive, bringing nature under our uh, our command, as it were. But this universal archetype of the cow being the mother, right? Like the glaciers of the Himalayas uh, being uh, this great cow and its udders feeding the, uh, the rivers, the rivers being a source of life, um, and it's resident in uh, Chinese uh, mythology, in North American uh, indigenous um, uh, traditions, uh, also in the Norse culture. I was just talking with a gentleman uh, this week about how, again, I've mentioned this in my podcast before, that there was a, a CBC radio broadcast where he, um, a gentleman who was an expert on, on North mythology, told me about this. Um, how the uh, the mythology of uh, the North uh, Mother uh, is almost identical to the uh, to the uh, the Indian uh, subcontinent. Uh, I mean, a Genesis myth, I guess we could call it. Uh, but it's it's just uh, the illusions are thick here. But I'll go on.
He says, these dead laugh at my foolishness, but wanted, but, uh, but would they have raised a murderous hand against their brothers if they had atoned for the velvet-eyed ox, if they had, if they had done penance for the shiny ore, if they had worshipped the holy trees, made peace with the golden-eyed frog. Sorry, made peace with the soul of the golden-eyed frog, was the actual quote. What say things dead and living? Who is greater, man or the gods? Truly, this sun has become a moon. I love that. The sun, I've mentioned this before, Ori sun being an early Christian contemplation practice that can be spelled either S-U-N or S-O-N. Right? Truly, the sun has become a moon, and in this case, it could be S-O-N or S-U-N. No new sun has arisen from the contractions of the last hours of the night. I love that line. Truly, this sun has become a moon. No new sun has arisen from the contractions of the last hour of the night. Mother, may your son be strong, said Philemon, as he bent to kiss the ground. Again, the, it's like the Buddha. So many, so many illusions of Philemon and the Buddha. He then looked to the heavens and said, How dark! is the place of the new light. How dark is the place of the new light. This is his fifth sermon. Your, your world of gods is manifest in spirituality and sexuality. Celestial gods appear in spirituality, the earthly in sexuality. Spirituality conceives so it's a mater celestis, the celestial mother is the spiritual. She conceives uh, and enhances. She's womanlike. Uh, he goes on and talks about um, sexuality engenders and it creates. It's the masculine. We call it phallos. Earthly is man. Spiritual is woman. Long story short, he goes on in this section. He's, he's relating the, the idea of yin and yang right, in his own words. And so we go on from that. He says, the essence of creation is differentiation. Sounds pretty good in English. It's even better in German. It's not that far off from Schatzin ich schaffen, right? Uh, uh, valuing is creating. Definitely something uh, that flows from Nietzsche. Spirituality and sexuality. Superhuman. Diamonds. That's what he says. We are diamonds, and these aspects are diamonds that reveal the gods, right? Mother is spirituality, phallos 
sexuality. It's our two aspects, the anima and the animas. An essence is spirituality and sexuality. An essence both above and beyond. You are delivered over to them as qualities of the pleroma. So I love that he mentions being delivered to them. We don't possess these qualities. These qualities are an aspect of the universe. And if we're not careful, we can be subject to the whims of these aspects. This is what he's warning us. He says, they are not your qualities, not possessed and uh, encompassed, but possesses you. No man has a spirituality or a sexuality of their own, but it's a common burden, a common, uh, what is that, a common danger, terrible, Abraxas, he says. So he says, absence of community is suffering and sickness. I love that because it rings of the Sangha, right? Sangha being the community of the like-minded, right? Uh, supporting each other. Community is indispensable because man is weak, right? So he actually said man is weak, therefore community is indispensable, but... I don't think it, it matters because community, I think, is essential. He goes on and mentions some... He says, um, Community in everything is dismemberment and dissolution. He says, Differentiation leads to singleness, which is opposed to community. Community is necessary for the gods. Gods... Um, they drive us to community. And I just want to point out the two here. So singleness, right? This is this idea that he talks about where the self and the I, right? So there's, there's your true self that is an aspect unique to yourself, but you're part of a whole versus this idea of singleness being... I've mentioned this before. In French, I would call it au uh, bas du ciel. So you're at the base of the sky, right? So this idea that the universe uh, revolves around you, right? You're the, uh, uh, right, like, uh, you're the, uh, you're the balancing point. I can't think of the uh, proper mathematical terms. But when he talks about dismemberment and dissolution, community is dismemberment and dissolution. I really do love that because it, we could spend uh, spend quite a bit of time just talking about that, right? Dismemberment, right? Dismemberment is an idea of being taken apart, probably not by choice. And dissolution, again, but not in a violent way like dismemberment almost brings to the idea of physically um, separating things, whereas dissolution is a natural um, separation. Right? I do love that. And so uh, that was uh, where I left it.
Um, I only went up to there. I probably should have stopped at the uh, the sexuality and spirituality. Um, I just found it funny how how hard he uh, he went uh, trying to uh, to integrate the the idea of yin and yang. But it's just a simple understanding that um, we are gestalt. We are a complex system. Everything about us is complicated. So it's 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 just like that quote about um, we we grasped the earth. Uh, your hand grasped the earth, but tears off the halo. So sad, so sad. But this idea that um, you can't separate the um, the pedantic. Uh, not the word I'm looking for here, but you can't separate the boring from the, the fantastic, if you know what I mean. Right? Gestalt speaks that, uh, you know, the mind-body connection. Um, but here we have Jung uh, discussing that there is no separation between the physical and the spiritual. This is why. I mean, it's become sexually charged, right? Because uh, Jung uses the term libido, which has... A connotation of a sex drive, but uh, I don't really believe that uh, that's what he intended, because Carl Jung did talk about how he felt Freud was a little too obsessed with sex, so I'm pretty sure he didn't mean libido in the sense of purely sexual. Uh, I think it has to do with, as I said before, the somatic uh, and the metaphysical. The physical and the metaphysical, right? The uh, the ephemeral and the ephemeral, the uh, the finite and the infinite, um, the sense and the nonsense. Um, I mean, it seems like nonsense, but uh, once you start to study Jung, it 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 begins to make uh, lots of sense. Right. So it begins and ends with valuing. So on that, have a fabulous weekend. And thank you very much for your patience. I can't believe how incredibly popular these uh, these um, episodes on Yi Jing, on Carl Jung, Nietzsche. Um, I think I'm not alone in seeing a solution to this modern malaise in the philosophy. Uh, or, very simply, the gestalt of the human experience uh, goes so far as to prove what I've been saying for years, that we made a major mistake when we separated science and philosophy. Look at where we're at today. I mean, if we had more politicians and policymakers and business people, and if we had more people with a, with a background or a, what would you call it, um, a basic understanding of philosophy, they might understand some of these things a little bit better. I mean, sure, there is no universal truth. There may not be an answer to everything. But philosophy allows us to evaluate. It's about answers, like I have mentioned uh, earlier this month. This idea of evaluation. It's uh, like Nietzsche's... Hinterwelter. You need to be a Hinterwelter. 
right? Even when you know it may not be true, sometimes those are the most important things to believe in. I mentioned this before in a podcast that for me it can even go to mainstream media. There's a movie that I uh, actually sought out to find because, again, as I said before, uh, Marshall McLuhan would be uh, would be absolutely appalled by the state of media nowadays, where um, there was a time when movies came out and it was just a movie, and then they realized that people love these movies, so let's give them some of these extras, maybe you know, uh, deleted scenes or even commentary. And then they got to the point where we were getting alternate endings. So for this movie, I truly adore. It's called um, Secondhand Lions. Highly recommend the movie. It's very good. And in it, there's a speech about um, believing in things even if they're not true. I've talked about this so many times. And it's been in the media recently where... People don't understand the duality of non-duality. They talk about that you can't go around uh, encouraging someone who says they believe that 2 plus 2 is 5. But, but thankfully they do mention the importance of, of understanding that 2 plus 2 is 4. As Dostoevsky said, we need to make space for the possible. And this is Carl Jung's active imagination. This is what I'm getting after here. If Carl Jung was able to rediscover his soul, heal his self, arguably he himself wondered if he had schizophrenia. I don't know if he had that specifically, but he most definitely had a number of mental breaks. But that's not that weird. I've mentioned this before, that nihilism, um, depersonalization, derealization, there's a number of conditions that I feel is much more akin to a passage like the dark night of the soul being um, an experience that we have to learn from possibly over and over again. And it's not until we deal with these experiences and these uh, resultant uh, perception and reaction uh, that it's not till we deal with those things that we truly can heal and grow and, and be a, a proper person. I mean, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day that, um, again, this is not for sure. This is just my own personal theory. If you look at uh, the autism spectrum disorder, uh, ADHD, uh, dyslexia, uh, and um, BPD, so borderline personality disorder, uh, all of these, for the most part, seem to be um, seeing an explosion in their spectrum, if I can say that. What I mean is uh, more and more people are being diagnosed with ADHD, with uh, dyslexia. Like when I was diagnosed with dyslexia 20, 30, whatever, 100 years ago, I was told they didn't even use the term anymore, dyslexia, right? Which makes sense because our prime minister called, says he, he was uh, dysnumeric, but I'm sorry, he's dysgraphic, he's dysnumeric, he's, he's everything. He's, he's just incredibly uh, dyslexic, it seems. So that, I think, was part of the reason why they dropped these terms, so that, you know, you can understand that you have a learning disability. These, seems things, these things seem to be very atypical. Uh, but neither here nor there. Um, 
Jeez, what was I getting at? I've actually lost that. I apologize. Oh, I suck. I apologize. Didn't mean to derail that one there, but um, what I was getting at is uh, I personally think that um, when we look at uh, the reason why people get lumped into BPD when they actually have uh, complex trauma or uh, autism spectrum or ADHD or what have you, if you look at dyslexia, it can actually present almost identical to autism and ADHD as well. I've heard a number of times where they say it can present very similar. I argue, and I was trying to explain this, this is what I was getting at, I was trying to explain this uh, to someone that if you look at this, what you find is the very much more reasonable source for these issues, especially since you, more and more people uh, are starting to give credence to the social uh, basis of disease. If you look at that, you can actually see that... So here's my theory. Uh, these diseases are the result of experience, what I would call trauma-informed adaptations. So if you look at, uh, say, dyslexia, so many times we talk about developmental disorders. So that could be uh, something as simple as a kid had a hard time uh, paying attention in class for whatever the reason may be. That resulted in a, a deficiency in different areas, which, as I've said before, uh, might be the real source of some of these conditions. But I'm not trying to attribute the cause. I'm trying to open minds, right, to have a certain sense of doubt. Maybe we were wrong, the tetralemma, or have a certain amount of doubt, or use Carl Jung's active imagination. If you can leave reason aside and start to think about these things, maybe we could figure something out. Right? Maybe we can think outside of the box, as the cliche goes. Or even better, uh, maybe we can develop a superposition. Maybe we can understand that maybe it's this and that. Right? This is the gestalt that I keep trying to talk about. If we try to find a single cause for things, are we deluding ourselves? Are we just weighing and numbering the bones? Right? Do we misunderstand far too often the gestalt of our existence, the fact that there is no separating uh, cause and effect? I mean, we can minimize or try to minimize the likely negative outcomes, right? This is what I talk about with trauma. Trauma is inevitable. We can't prevent trauma from happening, which so many places are talking about. It's like, oh, let's try to prevent, uh, you know, these safe spaces, prevent people from being influenced by trauma. But that's impossible because it's not the traumatic experience because that's what the one person was like. Well, you can't. Like, trauma is not the cause of these because trauma is just an experience. Yeah, that's where our words fail us because trauma, from the German, traum, dream, uh, it was just a term that we came up with. If you read Jung, he uses uh, other terms for this same experience. So when we talk about a neuroses, 
That results from, yes, the experience, but not directly. The neuroses or the resultant affect or the trauma-informed adaptation. So if you flinch at loud noises because uh, when you were young, you were in a car accident. Well, the cause source of these adaptations, these problems, these affects, these, these tendencies, these habits, uh, these conditions, neuroses, whatever you want to call it, the cause is not the car accident, because two people could get in the exact same accident. One can walk away traumatized, and the other not at all. So it's not the experience, right? One version of the word trauma, which is a traumatic experience, but it's the resultant perception and uh, integration of the experience. I mean, uh, the example would be um, childhood abuse. So many victims uh, of childhood abuse consider themselves uh, deserving of or they, they, they caused it or what have you. And it's not until they recontextualize that experience, this narrative theory, that uh, they're able to heal from this experience. So again, it wasn't the experience itself, but it, the resultant uh, perception and the experience in the wake of these events. Right? Because I argue the exact same thing happens on a regular basis psychologically. How many people are doomers, gloomers nowadays, right? Uh, they have these... Uh, they're so good at uh, catastrophizing. Well, you can cause yourself trauma by just uh, catastrophizing, right? You could sit there thinking about what may come, and you could traumatize yourself strictly from doing that. So that's not an event. It's not an event. That's a perception, and a perception to something completely internal. So for me, that makes the case that a lot of these conditions, these neuroses that we're looking to, I guess, heal, prevent, treat, whatever you want to call it, until we understand what they are and where they're sourced, are we just counting the bones? But with that, I'll leave it. You have yourself a fabulous week.